0: Hello, and welcome to Sobertown Podcast. I'm your host, Viv, and some of you know me as Sober I Thrive. Make sure to visit our website on SobertownPodcast.com. You will find our free Zoom calendars, Todd's modules for your sober toolbox, sober recovery stories, and our link to the Sobertown Facebook group on SobertownPodcast.com. I'll chat with guests and community members about topics related to sobriety and recovery. There are also a couple of sober communities called Boom, Rethink the Drink, and the I Am Sober app, where most of our website contributors met for Sobertownpodcast.com. Hello, Sobertown. I have a special guest here today. Some of you know her warmly, on IAS as change, and some of you know her like I do as Karina <laughs> and for all of us she is just an inspiration and courageous to share her recovery story
1: and I want to thank her for being here. Thank you Viv. It's good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for that lovely introduction. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? You know, I'm doing great. I am over how many days now? I'm like over 400 days sober. Woohoo! Woo-hoo! This is like feet I never imagined I would ever accomplish. I I have to say that getting to this point of total sobriety not just sobriety or not just quitting drinking, but actually doing what everyone calls the work and continuing to do the work because you never stop doing the work. So I'm, you know, I'm grateful that I get to share my story and thank you for holding space and thank you for your friendship. I think this is a great time. Because you are also incredibly inspiring, Viv, with everything that you are doing with the Sober Town, through the podcasts and on IAS and the the Zooms. So you have been a big part of my recovery in as much as the kind words you, you said about me. I write back at you, lady. Oh,
0: I love you. Thank you so, so much. And I'm learning how to take
1: compliments. Isn't that hard? I just want to say, I am not, I am not a nice person. (laughs) Yes, you (laughs) are. The stories we tell ourselves, right?
0: Right. Right. Easier to to hand out the compliment. But in in this case, I'm gonna hand it out and I'm graciously gonna take it in. So thank you so much. Brilliant. So tell us the story of little sea change, little Karina.
1: How did it all begin? All right. Well, little sea change. I was born in Amsterdam. My family is very working class, street savvy Amsterdammers, Amsterdammers. We have artists and artisans, scoundrels, musicians, dreamers, schemers, and opportunists. Most of them were either alcoholics or codependents, often both. All of them were fighters to some extent, either standing up for the little guy or fighting for their own sense of place. Both sides of my family could spin their own versions of the ancient tales of abandonment, abuse, adultery with alcohol, addiction, saturating all of these stories. But we did come to Canada. My parents were young, naive, and unsettled in many ways. And, and so my upbringing was quite volatile. And I would say that up until September of 2022, if I could describe with one word, the overarching theme of my life, it would be volatility. I like a lot of addicts to varying degrees volatility becomes a normalized way to go through your life. You crave the chaos, you crave the drama. There's a lot of unpredictability, recklessness, and chaos in your circumstances. The flip side is there's also excitement and adventure, spontaneity, alcohol and drugs. And for a lot of people I know, like me, that becomes the safety net that catches you. And at first, it seems like it protects you from the volatility of the instability of your life. Alcohol also provides that spark that ignites the fire in your life. And when it's burning bright, you are surfing the heights of your addiction. And But things things can be going really well. And for me, they were going really well. However, it's not until you are full-on into your drinking problem or addiction wherever that lands you you realize that all these mind-numbing substances are blinding you to the inevitability of of a fall and if you're if you're lucky you don't crash and burn and you know sadly too many people crash and burn i was lucky i crashed but I didn't burn, not really. Or maybe it it wasn't a crash so much as it was more like a rear-end collision. I call it a rear-end collision. It it was just a wake-up call for me, and it was the cruel and devastating breakup of my second marriage that started my sobriety journey. And so on May 5th, 2022... I'd had many stops and starts. I'd cut back here and there for a week or two. I have been on IAS since 2018, maybe early 2019. I was C at the time, not C-Change. C-Change came on Mm May 5th because I had to make a wholesale change. This idea that I could drink a little bit or I could manage it a little bit was just not happening and so I tried everything the French they say no more than you're supposed to quit one day a week one week a month one month a year and I couldn't even do that I mean that I had more recoveries and relapses followed by more regrets and recoveries and it was just rinse lather repeat I couldn't bring myself to accept that I could not handle alcohol. I love to drink. I love my wine. I love my bourbon. After the collapse of my first marriage, I became a champagne and Manhattan girl. That was my cocktail of choice. Our culture supports this romanticized ideal of the bon vivant. So I got into this idea of smart cocktails at five and it's always happy hour somewhere, right? I'd go to wine tastings, scotch tastings, brewery tours. I loved this romantic ideal. And because I'm a wild child by nature, I'm a party girl and drinking always made me the life of the party. And this is what I was often told. So I came to believe that I, my drinking wasn't a problem, but people were starting to express their concern. and And I would say that before that, I don't know that alcohol was really a, it was a problem when I drank, but I didn't drink that often. My first marriage, I mean, we would buy a six pack for the weekend because we were going to get wild. But if I, you know, I mean that that's really not a lot of alcohol and that wasn't very often. We didn't have a lot of money. But any time I went partying, I partied and I drank and then I'd be hung over and then there'd be a few months in between the next party. So I wouldn't, I guess you could call that binge drinking. So, you know, we could definitely say I was a binge drinker, but I did, wasn't drinking daily. That didn't start in earnest, really, until probably the, the collapse of my first marriage. And my first marriage was a, it was a 27-year relationship with the father of my daughter's, my daughter's father. Uh, We were friends at first and things were, were pretty good the first 10 years of our relationship, but he had had, he had had an affair with his business partner, a woman. And that was so devastating to me because it sort of set the wheels in motion of more infidelities back and forth. Suddenly I had to get even. And it also led to an increase in the amount of drinking. I would say that right around the time that I discovered that he had had this affair with his business partner, I was starting to work outside of the home. And I came back from from work one day, and it was a very, very stressful day at work. And my husband knew how to fix that, and he poured me a cocktail. And that was the first time I'd ever thought about using alcohol as a way to relax and a way to calm myself. Before, it was just to enhance a party, to enhance that feeling. And so there I was, you know, increasingly having more bad days than good days. So cocktails suddenly became a, a way of managing, a way of managing stress and not just cocktails. We, we then would start buying wine. And as we got older, you know, it, just increased in it became more in, increased to not yet quite to the daily drinking that the last, I would say, seven years of my drinking took on. But it was, it was pretty substantial. We definitely would drink a lot more than we had when we were first married. And our marriage troubles kind of dovetailed hand in hand with that, with the infidelities. And the drinking. In 2004 or so, 2006, I was elected to be a town counselor. So that's like an elder, an elderman, or I don't know what you would call them, but like a municipal counselor for my community. And I was the only woman on that council. And a lot of the networking, a lot of the post council meetings were bookended with scotch drinking scotch drinking beer called them council debriefings and it it sometimes got pretty pretty heavy the drinking that a lot of men can do because i wanted to keep up with my male counterparts It got heavy. I was drinking scotch and it wasn't just a scotch, of course, right? It was, we would drink and then I would have wine or I would come home. And alcohol was increasingly becoming not just a, a way to punctuate my life, but it became a part of my life. And my marriage collapsed in 2014. As I said before, we had a lot of infidelities, a lot of, I would cheat on him. In a way, my cheating was a means to make myself feel good that I was still attractive because in the second half of that marriage, so the first 10 years, I always felt I'd married my best friend. And when I discussed, maybe it was his guilt. I don't know. But he start, started to become a lot less kind. And he was very insulting about my my weight. Because of course when you have two kids, I'd gain some weight. I wasn't, I don't know, I just I, I didn't let myself go or anything like that. It wasn't like that. But he just I he just didn't find me attractive. And our our relationship was starting to suffer. And I again turned to alcohol in order to be able to Cope with the stresses of a marriage that was crumbling. It really was crumbling, and I, you know, we we went to therapy, and and I thought we had turned a corner. And in 2014, he set out. I, I really did. I started to trust him again. I stopped having my affairs, and I I really felt that this therapy was going to help us rebuild our relationship and we could get back to where we were when we first were dating, living together, and and having children. And he wanted to do this big trek to New Zealand called the Te Ara Roa. It's a three, over 3,000 kilometer trek from the North Island to the South Island. And he was preparing and planning his trip. And I was supposed to, I wasn't going to go with him because it's a through hike. It's a very physically demanding through hike. And I had just started a job and we still had our daughter at home, or she was graduated, but she was still, they still needed the support of their parents. So the, the kids were adults, but just transitioning into adulthood. And so I, became the ground support for his big dream of doing the Ara roa and i was so excited for him but he was starting to pull apart he was starting to pull apart and he was working closely with this woman that he had hired and now you know because i said woman you know where this is going (laughs) he's having a full-on affair with this woman and i always say she's she was working underneath him literally <laughs> and he i just didn't connect the dots i don't know why i was in denial alcohol obviously does that to you but he was having an affair with his coworker or his subordinate and as he's planning this trip to new zealand and as he's pulling away He's getting text messages from this woman, and he's lighting up every time he messages ding. And there's this one moment where I'm sitting in my living room watching a TV show, and he had gone to bed early. We had an Apple TV, and I'm upstairs watching, I don't even remember the show. But he was down, it wasn't his show, it was a chick flick. He wasn't interested. He was downstairs. He was on his computer. But what he was doing was obviously texting this woman because my show stops. And because we have an Apple TV and all your devices are connected to it, all of a sudden there's this nude photo of him that bumps out, drop dead gorgeous. And it becomes this p- nude photo of my husband that I'd never seen before and I knew he wasn't trying to entice me to come downstairs and join him in the bedroom because we weren't really having much sex at that point because he's too tired having an affair and planning for this trip and I just was so shocked and I remember going down the stairs and I said to him what's going on And he lied and he told me that he was just online with women and sending dirty, naughty photos. And I said, why? And instead of coming clean at that point, which he, you know, imagine, I just imagine now if he had come clean, it would have been devastating. But my, I don't know, who knows? You can't really make those kinds of predictions. But he said to me, and remember, my weight had always been an issue for him and I don't know, maybe the fact that I was getting older, who knew? But he said, maybe you should ask yourself why I need to do this. Mm -hmm. That was his response. And did I march downstairs, pack my suitcases and leave him? No, no, I did not. I still hung around because it wasn't quite over for me. And I remember telling him, because this was around, I'm going to say this was around August. And he was leaving in October. And as we got closer to his departure date for New Zealand, I remember thinking, I don't want you to leave because if you, you are planning your exit and if you exit, we're done. And he left in October. We were still together and still carrying on this pretense of me being the supportive wife. Sis ba. I'm the cheerleader for you, honey. And he's carrying on his affair with this woman. His eyes were so vacant when he stood at the airport saying goodbye at photographs. And he just looks like a shell of his former self. And what he's doing is probably figuring out how he's going to leave me. In Christmas of 2014, he was going to halt his 3,000-kilometer trek. To come back to Canada, our daughters who were off at university were going to come back and join us in Victoria at this resort. We had rented this beautiful resort and it was a family reunion. It was an opportunity to get connect again and hear about all his adventures. And my mother-in-law was going to join us with her partner and... Christmas Eve, again, all the while he was gone from October until Christmas Eve when he came back to Canada. The emails were really kind of distant. He wasn't emailing me directly. I was sort of included in this group all email that his Mom was on. Our kids were on. There were no, hey, Karina, I think you'd really enjoy New Zealand. I can't wait till you come. There were no plans being made for me to join him. So I knew, I knew, you know, seriously, by this time in the story, I'm sure the listeners are already realizing what more, like, like did you need to be hit in the head with a sledgehammer? Apparently I did. And that sledgehammer came on Christmas Eve when he finally admitted that he no longer wanted to be married to me. And this is a 27-year relationship. I met him when I was 21. We had our kids together. My own upbringing, my own parents, their volatile marriage was sort of the template for me. So this idea of infidelity and, and fighting and everything, that was so normal to me that I No, in the past we had said well I I'm gonna leave you no I'm not you know you threatened divorce and and so this time I'd hoped it was just again I want a divorce and I'm in denial thinking well I'll work on myself I'll make myself a better person I'll I'll uh, whatever it takes I we have to fight for this marriage and I agreed to get therapy because I blamed myself I had self-diagnosed myself with some borderline personality disorder that subsequent therapists, there have been about four or five, have reassured me I do not have a borderline personality disorder. I do have attachment and abandonment issues, but I do not have a borderline personality disorder. But this husband, this man, this love of my life, my best friend, let me wear this blade. He let me wear that blame and I went to therapy and I was going to work on it so that when he flew back to New Zealand after the Christmas break, I was bound and determined to try and win my husband back. In the meantime, there was chaos and I love chaos. I didn't love that chaos, but that was what I was gifted that Christmas of 2014 I didn't know how to handle it. My daughter was there with her boyfriend who was meeting her family for the first time. And she poured me a drink. She said, Mom, I have just the thing to help you. And she was in the restaurant industry at that time. So she knew the recipe for the perfect Manhattan, the right combination of vermouth and bourbon and bitters. And it was it went down so well. And I think gourmet cherries as well. And that became my signature cocktail. And that is the cocktail, my go-to cocktail that I would reach for any time my subsequent problems came up. If I needed courage, if I needed to get over the a broken heart, I could rely on my trusty Manhattans. And when I was done with the Manhattans, because it gets pretty expensive, I could rely on some wine to bolster up the the drunkenness that the numbing that I needed to feel to get through that first breakup. And he came back in March and he was serious he wanted to to break up. And I never let up on the drinking in fact because we still had our joint account. I started adding champagne to the mix because he and I he owned a business, and I worked, and we had good money, and we lived in a very lovely mountain community and so making good money meant that I could afford to have this bon vivant lifestyle of travel and i could that was the that was the alcohol I chose, and because I think. There is this romanticized ideal of the bon vivant, the ladies who lunch, the tortured artist's soul. I could, I could justify drinking and justify those cocktails and having my wine club and having access to all kinds of alcohol under the guise of some sort of, you know, privilege but it really was just drinking. There was no difference between my drinking premium bourbon or drinking some, you know, I don't know, cheap wine or, or cooking sherry. Alcohol is alcohol is alcohol. And I think you end up trying to drink too numb for the same reasons. And... I never I never really took a break from that. I continued to just drink and, and drank daily. I went from being a, a drinker to being a drinker, like a real full-on solid drinker. It just,
0: it seems like alcohol is the company.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It, it's the lady sitter.
1: <laughs> the lady sitter. That is awesome. I I
0: recognized mine was lady sitter.
1: Well, you know, from drink from binge drinking at parties, drinking whatever is around or making your, you know, fun little rainbow punch to using it as a tool to cope with the stresses of being a grown-up to using it as an opportunity to network and be one of the boys in the boys club when I worked on town council to having it become a full on everyday presence in my life so it it kind of is everything and also when you are in the throes of a broken heart you know that giddy feeling you have when you're drunk that you associate with a party that you you get to channel that feeling when you are Trying to piece together your your life. In those those moments when you don't have to confront the reality, it's a little party in a bottle. It's a little fiesta, you know, a little fiesta. So, that that happened. That was my first marriage, and I never did really stop drinking going forward. And I was also on antidepressants. And I was also taking sleeping pills because the shock of losing this relationship meant it was just very difficult for me to cope. And and I was going through the motions of my life, going into work. And I I I mean, I did my job and I did my job well. But was I at my best? I really wasn't. I know that I would show up at work hungover. I know that there were times when I probably had to improvise and do something different. I'm a school teacher, so you know the joke is often that a teacher will put on a movie, sure. and I'm not sure that that's not what I did. I I can't say for certain, but in any event, I think my principal was starting to notice that i mean she knew i was going through a tough time i had given her the heads up but i think the fact that i was starting to check out i was still doing my job i was still doing my assessment i mean you can you can check the boxes of the curriculum and the things you need to deliver but if you're not engaged you're not an effective teacher and While I was never fired and my principal offered me a glowing letter of recommendation, I feel that my contract wasn't going to be renewed because of my breakdown. What I can only describe as a breakdown. I think when you're dealing with a broken heart by using alcohol, and sleeping pills, and you're not facing the reality, and you're not dealing with your pain, you, you start to lose your efficacy as whatever worker, fill in the blank, whether you're a teacher, whether you are a working in a factory, a real estate agent, whatever it is, you're not going to be effective. And I was without a job. That would have been two years later. So 2014 to Christmas, he said, we're divorced. I spent the next two years drinking, feeling sorry for myself, sleeping around with an endless string of different men. I was hurt and I wanted to find love so badly. I remember I went to a retreat and I created a vision board and I knew I wanted to find a relationship and i also knew i wanted to travel and so when i got let go of my job a year and pretty much a year later 2016 i decided i was going to travel i wasn't going to teach anymore i needed to take a break and i needed to find myself it was going to be my eat pray love moment but you can't do eat pray love if it was i think the joke goes you know drink party and fuck right like that's basically what my Julia Roberts moment was going to be but I didn't have the awareness I wasn't doing the work and that's what I did I took 2016 I quit my job where I wasn't actively seeking employment and I started to travel again in my marriage to my first husband we did travel a lot we went to Argentina. We went to France. We did so many beautiful family trips, and I fell in love with travel. So I was going to use this opportunity to heal my wounds and travel. And I booked a trip to Morocco. And I went to New York. And I, but I wasn't dealing with my stuff. So it doesn't matter. It sounds exotic to be traveling or to be living this lifestyle. But it was still just escaping. I'm just chronically, constantly escaping my broken heart, my own garbage. Because yes, it was really not cool to have an affair. Instead of ending your marriage, you have an affair or you you take off to New Zealand to go and end your marriage. That's not cool. But I also have to accept the responsibility of what I brought to the disintegration of that marriage, and I wasn't, you know, I had my own issues to deal with, and I'd also had my affairs during that marriage. I mean, it was a tit for tat kind of thing. So, I I had to get real, and I just wasn't ready yet. I, that took a long time, and in my travels, I was dating, and I met uh I was I was on my way to Belize and I was at a layover in Atlanta and I was on Tinder and I got this super like from this person who was in Atlanta and in Atlanta there are some movie studios and this was someone who was an artist and he had been working on a major Hollywood movie as an artist. And that gave him this cachet, this legitimacy that I just decided that this person was going to be my person. We connected over the phone. We talked on the phone and we just hit it off. We connected instantly and that should have been my first red flag, but it wasn't. I, I said to him then in that first phone call in Atlanta, because I was so desperate for a relationship, but of course that's just in your subconscious. But I had said to him, I think he might be my person. And our first date was, he was in between movies and our first date was in Belize he flew down to belize before he moved on to the next movie in los angeles and you and i had joked about this before <laughs> about how everybody in los angeles is in the business and it really isn't as big a deal as i made it in my head but to me he was this distinguished artist and i got to i got to live this sort of romantic version of this new romance. So we met in September in Belize and it was whirlwind to say the least.
0: He then moved to Los
1: Angeles and I followed him. in in October, I decided to move to Los Angeles I moved out of I had moved out of the family home in 2016. That was a big catastrophe. That's a story for another day. I moved to Los Angeles and I lived in Burbay with this man that I had met for two like I had only known him for two weeks in September. And then I was flying to Los Angeles and I'd moved in with him. And then you get to know the person when you move in with them. (laughs) (laughs) and all of a sudden you know those those rose-colored glasses started getting pretty clear and i'm still drinking keep in mind i'm still drinking and when this man was working when he was on a film he was confident he was funny he was charming he was hilarious but when he wasn't working on a film he was anxious he was volatile he was depressed insecure needy and broke <laughs> he he couldn't he he couldn't save money to save his life but he always wanted to remind me that he made way more money than i did he had no savings no n- there was nothing to his name But of course, because he worked in the industry, he made more money than I did. And he loved to throw that over my head when things weren't going well. But when things were going well, you know, we'd go out for dinner, we would travel, we did all kinds of wonderful things. However, he had debts. And I got to tell you that what I should have realized was a deal breaker ended up being something that dragged that relationship to seven years. I met this guy in September. By October, I've moved in with him. By December or January of 2017, I had already loaned this man $40,000 USD. Wow. And I knew he would pay me back I wanted, and he did. He did pay me back. He's not a person of, it's not that he lacks integrity. He lacks maturity and he lacks calm. He's volatile. He is chaos in a carcass is basically how I have come to describe him. I was still doing my traveling and i still had that bug in me i still was drinking but he would wherever i was in the world he would find the florist and send me flowers for our mensiversary we celebrated every month because we had met on the 13th of september and on the 13th of every month i got these huge bouquets of flowers and chocolates and i was His person. But remember that when he wasn't employed, I went from hero to zero and I was persona non grata. I was a moron. I was stupid. I, he was so volatile. I knew that, I mean, I did want to, I did want to be with him. I wanted a relationship so badly. I wanted my romance. I, married him. We got married in Las Vegas. We met in September. And by July, I moved in with him in October. By July of that following year, we had a Las Vegas wedding. We were married by Elvis at midnight. Alcohol flowed. Drugs flowed. My kids flew out from Canada. My parents flew out. I really believed that this was the per- my person and that i had finally found love but i couldn't live with him <laughs>
0: <laughs> you were having one of those hollywood star marriages i
1: i thought you know there was a, an idea that you could live apart together <laughs> so i was i thought this is how it's going to work this relationship with this man that i love this crazy, broke-ass, volatile, brilliant artist is going to work so long as we don't live together. And that happened when I was looking for a job in 2018 and I was given an opportunity to travel and work in Egypt And that's what I did. I moved to Egypt and he stayed behind. He had moved to Canada to live with me. That happened because he was working on a movie in the United States. We were married. He lived in the States. I lived in Canada. We would travel, meet up with each other. It worked because we didn't live together. But COVID hit and COVID dictated that he either came to Canada or he stayed in the States and who knows when we would get to see each other. He had been kicked out of his apartment because he thought he had COVID and his landlord didn't want to deal. This was in the early stages of COVID when everybody, nobody knew exactly what COVID was. We now have a better idea, but at the time it, you know, it was this unknown entity So he'd been kicked out of his apartment. He had nowhere to go. He was working on a movie and he could work remotely because he does a lot of his art on computers. So I invited him to come live with me in Canada. And there we were stuck together with nowhere to go because not only did I not want to live with him when there wasn't a pandemic, but now we were forced to live together so this opportunity to teach abroad really appealed to me and i i moved to egypt and i worked in egypt and we did our long distance relationship i still got the love bombing the flowers the you know when he was working he was happy he was doing really well he had the confidence and swagger of a successful person the successful person that i th- thought i had met but when things weren't good when he was unemployed or when the pandemic really set in his head that he was alone he got really desperate and volatile and needy and even though we were FaceTiming every day, sometimes two or three times a day, I knew that my traveling abroad was not going to, it was not going to work. It it wasn't working for him. But I'm really good at denial. <laughs> I am so good at it. You know, here I was in Egypt on the Nile, in denial. <laughs> And that I did, the first year was my experience year and he wanted to support me and he did. But it wasn't really the experience I'd hoped it would be because of COVID. You couldn't really travel. He couldn't come and join me. And I had this romantic idea that we would have this long distance relationship and he was agreeable to it. So even though I would occasionally get these Sobbing phone calls from him, he would recover and he would support me and he would be my cheerleader. And so, the n- next year, I was asked if I wanted to come back. And through conversation, yes, I would do another year. And he came out to visit me. We had an opportunity to go to Turkey, we had an opportunity to go to Spain. He got to see Egypt. This was something that influenced him greatly. He had worked on a movie that had an Egyptian theme. I won't mention the names of these movies. I'm sure if you were curious enough, you could find out who he was. I mean, he's, you have to slow the movie down quite substantially because there are hundreds of names on the crew. But I, I thought he would love seeing egypt and he hated egypt and he resented that i was doing this job abroad so when the time came for me to do a third year or come back to canada i opted to do a third year with his consent but then he threw it in my face that if we were going to do a third year that I would have to quit drinking and keeping in mind that for my first and second year, I was still a heavy drinker. And even though you are in a Muslim country, you can still have access to alcohol. Every time you leave the country, you go through the duty free and you put that duty free in your suitcase and you come back into your Muslim country with your bottles of bourbon and your bottles of wine tucked into your underwear. you keep your underwear at the top of your suitcase so that the customs, they don't want to touch a lady's underwear. (laughs) So they'll just let you go through. I did do a lot of traveling. I loved it. I, I got to see so many sites. It was an amazing experience. And wanting to do that third year, my husband said, I'd like you to do it sober. And I'd also like you to consider an open marriage because it's lonely without you. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't I I mean I kinda of course I knew what an open marriage was, but I didn't know if I could actually we had sort of experimented with that. And I didn't I wasn't I didn't really like it. I had to get drunk. I had to to in order to get the courage to do it. And so I'm not sure that I actually gave consent. I mean if you're that hammered and that passed out in order to be able to to do to do it, maybe it's not for you. I was willing to give it a thought or give it a try or or look into it, but that was all the permission he needed to pursue and win the affection of this woman who is now his partner. I got to I hired a therapist to help me get through and understand what it means to be in an open relationship. I tried to set ground rules, but he wasn't having it cuz he had already met and just like my first husband who met and fell in love and I got to watch him pull himself away. The same thing happened to me with this second husband. He was a lot more volatile. He was a lot less kind. And my marriage essentially was over by the time I got back to Canada because I wasn't going to do a third year anymore. I decided I needed to work on my marriage because I believe in marriage, which is ridiculous when I think about the kinds of men that I seem to have attracted. I decided that, you know, I would hire a therapist and I would work on this marriage, but there was nothing to work on anymore. He had met and fallen in love with this balding phlebologist who happens to enjoy pole dancing. And sorry,
0: I don't to say it.
1: The combo is like, okay. I know, you know, I'm hurt. It was done so dirty. It was just like not, if you want to stay in Egypt another year, we should divorce. Not, this doesn't work for me. It was this slow ripping off of the band-aid. Both men were too cowardly to confront me with their unhappiness at the way that I wanted my independence or whatever, whatever shit they had with me. Whatever they didn't like about me, they weren't man enough or human enough to say to my face I am not happy in this relationship instead they went the coward's way out and they decided to have affairs and they decided to fall in love in front of me so both times I became a third in my own marriages and yeah May 5th 2022 I quit drinking and I quit drinking anyway And I kept that therapist because it turns out the qualities of what you need in an open relationship, in an open marriage, are the same qualities you need to love yourself and to accept open marriages or not accept open marriages. You cannot be bullied into something. You cannot use the threat of divorce to keep people in a relationship with you. And it was a rebuilding of my self-esteem, a rebuilding or an establishing of boundaries that made me realize in hindsight that this people-pleasing alcoholic was trying to be square peg in a round hole. So my second marriage ended as well. And so my recovery has been to get back on IAS. It was so funny because when I left for Egypt, I had about 90 days sober because that was one of my other attempts at sobriety. And I said, oh, I'm going to have my 110 day of sobriety as I, you know, hit Cairo. And I thought for sure, because I was going into a Muslim country, that alcohol would be hard to get well let me tell you egyptian beer it's not as good as the craft beer that you can get in north america or in europe or other places but it gets you high egyptian wine egyptian vodka egyptian they don't have egyptian bourbon but they do have egyptian scotch and it's not bad you know so when you don't get to go to duty free They have an app that a lot of expats will download called drinkies and they will deliver your bottles of whatever to your door. Pretty handy stuff. And even during Ramadan, there are ways to get alcohol Ramadan, the holy holiday and it's 30 days long. And of course there are, there are Muslims who do drink alcohol, even though it is haram a sin, but during Ramadan, you cannot buy alcohol at all, even if you are an expat. There's always a way. And if when... you have your passport, you can go to restaurants and, and still imbibe. So it wasn't a problem. And of course, drinking when you're in an expat, that's how you connect. Alcohol is a great connector. Anytime I moved into a new apartment or a new place... You just go to the local bar and there you'll find your tribe. just you're an alcoholic, so and- i put my tribe on i a s because you're all former alcoholics, so there you go. We all know what it, how to have a good time, and we know you know how we used alcohol to to hide from ourselves and to to cope with the stresses of life
0: yeah, we're the tribe that now, without alcohol, it's showing up really authentically. Absolutely. And, and really telling our our stories and healing each other and doing what you're doing right now.
1: Well, today, I am grateful. It was not a great lead up to sobriety as it seldom is. You know, both exes have not behaved nobly. My one ex has tried very hard to vilify me and has spread lies about me. And my second ex has done similar. But in any event, I've got my health. My health has been returned to me in the at the end of my drinking career where i was passing out every night drinking the hard liquor after having a bottle of wine having that that bloated exterior we all know we all have seen the before photos and knowing how i am looking after my health i am eating healthy when you're drunk you're not going to you're you don't feel like cooking you're going to eat fast food you're going to eat junk so i've look. i'm looking after my health physically emotionally spiritually i meditate life is good i have a good relationship despite his best efforts I have a good relationship with my children, my adult children. I have grandchildren. Um, I've learned to establish boundaries with the family members in my life who have never respected those. I now respect myself enough to have them. And I have a new loving partner in my life. We could, I mean... The third one's the charm, right? I met him as a sober person. He is so he is not he is sober, but he never had a drinking problem. He just doesn't drink with me. He supports my sobriety, and I I have become a different person. It's why I call myself sea change because I had to make a significant change in how I live my life or I was just going to relapse again. If you don't deal with your garbage, if you don't deal with why you are drinking, you are going to keep drinking because it becomes your go-to coping mechanism. It's how you numb. It's how you get over insecurity. It's how you become the life of the party. So cutting that out, let me tell you, moving back to Canada with my seven suitcases and my two rescued cats from Cairo,
0: doing that sober was the
1: biggest test so far of my sobriety because my ex kicked me out of my house he he wanted to keep the apartment so even though he had he was unemployed and had the luxury of finding a new place he was going to stay in the apartment I had to find myself a new place. So in the in the meantime, until I could get all that organized, I crashed at my parents' place. So there I was, 50-something-year-old woman. who had to go live with her parents again in order to create my new life. My parents were away, and I was only going to stay there a month. And I had done that before. I had lived with my parents before in 2018. That's another story for another day. And that didn't work out. So I wanted to make sure I was not there when my parents got home from Europe, their European vacation. I got back from the airport. I had to lug those suitcases by myself. Seven suitcases. (laughs)
0: Landing
1: in Montreal. Landing in Calgary. Driving from Calgary to Edmonton. After traveling already, like I think I'd been up for like 28 hours, heartbroken, just in a a hot mess, what they call a hot mess, and sober. I was sober. Get to my parents' place and my parents are drinkers. My parents are drinkers and they have a fully stocked bar and they have a wine wall. Like they have, you want red, you want white. How about a rosé? You want bourbon? You want scotch? You want gin? My parents have it all. And they weren't there. There was nobody there to keep tabs on me. And I seriously had my first major temptation because who? no one was going to blame me. They even said that in, in hindsight. No one was going to blame me if I picked up a bottle because I'd broken marriage volatile marriage i mean the entire time it was volatile no one was going to blame me i lost my dog in that marriage i mean that a another sad thing but anyways and i co- reached out to one a member in our ias community i reached out to chef 56 and he's got now three years of sobriety and he's been a leader in our community and other communities as well And for some reason, I think he just was reaching out. How are you doing? And I said, I really want to drink. And he said, if you've started, please stop. And if you haven't started, please don't. And we talked about all the other things that I could do. And this was in July. I quit drinking in May. And it was the first time I had to cope with something so significant. sober, and I did it. And it is one day at a time. And through the IAS community, I've done the Zooms where I got to meet you, got to meet you in person. Yeah. And the rewired, you know, the rewired workshops. And I'm still with my therapist, although that's starting to wind down now. Not that I'm, you know, it's not that I'm perfect or anything. I'm still doing work, but I just feel more at ease. That's the beauty of sobriety and doing the work is you start to accept yourself and what you present to the world is the authentic version of you. You start to learn boundaries. You speak up for yourself. You create less chaos. You create less drama. And you're able to deal better with the stuff that you used to have to drink to get through,
0: I remember meeting you on a zoom like I think you were you were still living at your parents' house, and it was the first zoom where I laid my eyes on you <laughs> I remember you were just funny, you were funny, you were taking everything you know, with a chuckle. And I think I even sent you something. I said, you're the type of person that some friends shouldn't sit next to during class. You That's know?
1: right. You know, and as as heavy as the story is, there is, there is moments of, you know, where you're just, you gotta laugh. Because if you don't laugh, you, you know, you're just gonna, you're gonna cry. You don't know whether to laugh or cry.
0: But the Zooms, I guess where I'm going is they give us the bandwidth and you not only showed up as a participant, but now in your sobriety, you, you show up as a host.
1: Yeah, I love hosting. I love sharing the benefits of sobriety with other sober people who get it. But also for those that are new to sobriety, I love to show them that there is life after alcohol
0: everything changes i mean even dating you're because i'm the spectator seeing your journey unfold and i remember you just it was so beautiful to watch and for you to say something like hey i'm dating and i'm sober right and having that and and your remarks of being doing it all sober how did that feel
1: Well, it was quite the comedy to you no longer have that courage, that liquid courage to sit through another version of the same broke ass chump you just divorced. (laughs) So, goggles and a flop goggles are gone. And all of a sudden, you realize when you're being catfished. And that photo he posted is 10 years old, and he's a dirt bag. You know, like there are a lot of dirt bags when you get to a certain age. And dirt bags are great. There's nothing wrong with people who are, you know, underemployed in order to pursue their passions. But don't, don't paint yourself as a, a manager or don't paint yourself as, something you're not if if really all you want is to just get lucky like be honest honesty is is really important and and i have to say that even though my second partner or sorry this partner i met on tinder he was honest from day one what you see what you get yeah
0: because and i see- I see, I've seen him I, for your one year, your partner, celebrate you like the queen that you are. You know,
1: I'm talking to you on the beautiful computer he gave me as a gift. He's not comfortable sharing with me sharing that, but he just felt that that was such a significant milestone one year sobriety. They wanted to celebrate it and he took me out for a beautiful dinner. And he's he's just a very I have to say he's super intelligent and super there's a lot of great things, but he's not volatile. He is the opposite of volatile. He is I I there's no head over heels, there's no narcissism. Both my exes had these narcissistic tendencies. I'm not a psychologist. However, the whole love bombing, the whole cycle of love bombing, abuse, and discard, which is ultimately what happened in both cases, there is no evidence of that this time around. This time around, I am calm. I approach it. Not pragmatically, but kind of pragmatically, it kind of takes the you know there is no I'm sorry to say the eat, pray, love, like if you know the story, Elizabeth Gilbert dumped his ass and went with her lesbian lover, like there is no eat, pray, love, even eat, pray, love isn't eat, pray, love we were, there the beauty of a relationship or the be is the one with yourself that's more important than than partnering up with someone but if you do partner with someone make sure that they compliment you and not well they compliment you like hey you're really sexy da da, da but also that they compliment your personality <laughs> but it's sobriety that's you said it you you
0: taught me that word you know the itchy sweater that I'm wearing
1: mm-hmm. the feeling. yeah and I I I know that analogy and I said that that all of a sudden things get awkward when you're sober because you can't use the alcohol to create energy and excitement and energy it's just you calm you healed you pragmatic you whatever you you are and you're awkward And it is sometimes you wear, you you experience feelings you used to drink away and now you got to wear them and you got to experience them. And it is like wearing a sweater that you put in the wash that came out just a little too small and you can still fit into it, but it's just hanging over your belly and your belly buttons hanging over your pants like a muffin top and you're exposed. And we are exposed with our feelings now, and we can express it, we can articulate it, but we got to feel it. And that's one of the things that my therapist has said to me. And I love this woman. Shout out to Sue Ann, who is this gorgeous, authentic human being who does the erotic blueprint, which is what was going to help me get into the open marriage, but she ended up helping me open myself to me and it had nothing to do with sex. Although now my, you know, sexuality is something that when you're authentic, you can ask for what you want. You, you no longer are in these shitty relationships because you're true to yourself. So she said about the emotions, I feel them, feel your emotions, Just don't let them drive your bus. And so when something happens that pisses me off or if I'm angry, you know, and and trust me, two broken marriages and a volatile upbringing. My anger, I called her Regina. I had a name for her. And she rage and anger serves a purpose. You can't drink it away you can't avoid it you can't just say oh stop being angry well anger is anger is anger and so anger can sit at the table with you she just can't drive your bus sometimes you need anger like i'm telling you when the vikings are you know raping and pillaging your community and you have to protect your loved ones you need that you channel that rage you use that rage when someone cuts you off in traffic, maybe you don't need that kind of rage. Not at that, that level. So it's just she shows up. She doesn't show up as often anymore, to be honest, because I've dealt with a lot of stuff. But when she shows up unexpectedly, it's like, well, hello there, Regina. Come sit beside me. She's. I. I feel my feelings, but I also can acknowledge them from... A different perspective. Is it a hundred percent? Absolutely not. But I am authentic, and I am awkward now. I'm wearing that itchy sweater that's too small, and my belly is exposed. And you and know, I'm, that's just,
0: we're sober. We're not monks.
1: We're sober. We're not monks. No, exactly. And it, it it's. The the net and I'm not done yet. I still want to this journey of self discovery. You know you you taught me that by the way when you said instead of calling it recovery, calling it discovery, and it's such an important journey to be on. You only have one life, so to find out who you are, what are your passions, what makes you tick, to do it sober. All of a sudden, there's no haze. There's no it's it's so raw. I was on a I was on a podcast with this man who said, Yeah, I'm raw dogging sobriety because he had no support. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. But yeah, you're just raw. You're just and I'm still my next project of discovery, and I'm I'm doing better is to forgive myself. Cause how can I forgive my exes? Because you can hear it in my voice. You can hear the bitterness. I everyone, you know, you got to get over it. Yeah, I will get over it. It's a process. And I think before I can get over that, I need to be able to forgive myself for making the choices I made, for being the kind of person who allowed those things to happen and to be a willing participant in a life that wasn't being led by me. It was totally at the whim of other people. And the only way that I could deal with it was to numb myself. So, yeah, I still have cravings. Of course, I still have cravings, especially in the summer. Wouldn't I love to be on a patio having a nice crisp glass of white wine? But I know it's not going to be a one crisp glass of white wine. It's going to be, I can handle that. I can do another and another and another. And then I'm back to where I started, and I don't want to go back there. I can't go back there i don't i I have to learn to love that person that I was. I was just about to say i don't want to I don't like her, but I have to learn to like her and I have to learn to forgive her, and I haven't done that yet, but that's you know year two year two is you know for year one, call it acceptance and change and working on the physical and mental health year 2 is going to be going back in time and forgiving and forgiving those that caused me harm and forgiving myself for the harm i caused others i think it's really important
0: it's the onion being peeled constantly we're we're taking off the itchy sweater and all the layers that came with it
1: mm mm-hmm. yeah no? You yeah. just being, you know, yeah, just
0: raw and pure, unfiltered. I love that. What would you say to somebody on their day one? Looking back, what would be the words that you would say to that person?
1: So I think... Everyone's day one is going to be different because I've had, I don't know how many day ones. I think my first day one, I was sh- by gum, I was just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I was going to conquer this sobriety and I was working my way. This day one after a relapse, and you're hearing these positive messages, you don't want to hear it. You know it. But my message to the very first day oneer and the hundredth day oneer is it is really truly one day at a time. Sometimes it's one second at a time. Sometimes it's one hour at a time. Whatever it is, you get through that day. You do what you need to do to get through it. And when you get through it, when you've gone through and when you're dealing with your shit sober. It's the payoff is better than any high you've ever had, and I've had some pretty good highs because <laughs> I didn't just do alcohol, all right, in my party days. So, but I don't. I I'm I was not a drug addict, right? But I definitely crossed that threshold. I'd never thought I'd cross the threshold but once i started using alcohol to cope i crossed the threshold i can never go and i realize having had relapses i can never go back and my advice to day oneers is just one day at a time one foot in front of the other just keep going keep swimming you're going to have bad days you're going to have good days and sometimes the bad days might not even they they may be the the reason why you want to relapse but push. I push through it. I'm only 400 some days sober. I know for a lot of people on day one, that sounds like a lot, but I look at people who are, you know, in the thousands and 1200s and longer. And then there are people in our community who recently have relapsed, the people with the thousand days. So I can never, ever rest and say, well, I've got the sobriety thing conquered. Really? You never know. You never, you never know. Never, I mean that I I just know right now the pay off of sobriety is worth fighting through craving. I know that today.
0: Well watching you just you know put so much joy into your life. That's what I see. A woman that Puts joy into her life. Well,
1: you're so kind. I I do. I love. I I do love life again. I mean, it's been a long process to find my joy. And you know, it is the focusing on the spiritual, emotional, physical. I I bicycle. I do boxing. I do powerlifting. Just it's a sea change. I've had to completely change everything about how I approach life in order to support my sobriety.
0: Yeah. And you do it beautifully.
1: So do you. (laughs) It's, it's a great, I'm so grateful to have met women like you and you know, other women on our, in our group. And I won't mention, I don't, I don't know if they want their names mentioned, but you know, because it is anonymous. I've had the pleasure to meet you in person in California and others. This was awesome. I would love to go to England. There's a few of us out there. There's one lady in particular that I'd love to meet. A camaraderie and support system with women and also our mixed meetings as well. It's just, It's, you can't do it alone, right? Connection beats addiction. I like IAS. It doesn't have the rigidity that Alcoholics Anonymous has. A lot of people love that program and it works for them. I haven't tried it, so I can't say it does or it doesn't. But this is the, the, this is what's worked for me and touch wood. I think this is how it's how I will get through the next 400 days. I just know I cannot drink. I just know now <laughs> you know with with certainty that there's just no room for just one just one drink. I joked with you I thought you know if I was going to write a memoir it was going to be called It's not that bad. Because I never felt I was that bad because if you're drinking cocktails, it's not that bad. Everybody drinks cocktails. Everybody drinks wine. It's not that bad, you know, and it's not until people pull you aside and say you're drinking too much and you're starting to not function. But I I don't have that homelessness or houseless story didn't really get fired or if I did get fired it was it was done in a very gentle way and I had support systems so it wasn't even like I really got fired I never had to hit this idea of a rock bottom in order to get sober and I'm lucky I'm very lucky and privileged so it's easy to kind of fool yourself into thinking it's not that bad I'm not living under a bridge well you know, and also I have a very strong constitution. So with the amount that I was drinking, I'm surprised that I wasn't, I don't have liver damage. You know, I have family members that died of cirrhosis of the liver. I have family members that have liver issues right now who still actively drink. So I wasn't, I'm not that far behind them or I wasn't, Cause it, but I, you can always just say, oh, it's not that bad. You know, my before and after pictures, oh, maybe I was a little chubbier. I think if you look really close, you'd see yellow. The yellow, you know, skin tone and, and in my eyes. But it wasn't that bad. <laughs>
0: I think by doing podcasts like this and just being able to share our stories, we can break the stereotypes for everyone oh if, yeah yeah
1: you know there's a lot of literature out there of, of women like me you go to the book clubs you you belong to these wine drinking book clubs you go to the wine tastings brewery tours you get i mean there's so many youtube and and tick of I actually subscribe. This is one thing that keeps me sober. There's an Instagram account called Drunk People Doing Things. I just got to watch that. And I'm just reminded of the stupidity of getting drunk and trying to go for brunch, trying to walk, trying to do everyday tasks drunk. It's, It's a sobering Instagram, that's for sure.
0: For sure, thank you so much, Karina. You thank have you. been beautiful, inspiring, and I appreciate and have so much gratitude for you.
1: Well, thank you for letting me have this space. Thanks for sharing your space and for giving people on IAS and Sober Town the opportunity to share their their stories. Some of them are so harrowing and so inspirational. At the same time, I hope that my story resonates for somebody, somebody out there who says, hey, I'm not that bad as they're, you know, on their sixth mimosa.
0: I know that for me, very inspiring. I know listening to your story, I could see the mirror of what my life was. And I'm sure there's more, lots more of us out there. So thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, tell a friend or someone you know. Pass this podcast on. And my information is Viv, founder of SoberiThrive.org. I'm an internationally certified in addiction recovery, other known as a sober coach and a life coach too. My certifications encompass the neuroscience of joyful recovery. Roots of Addictions, Alcohol and Its Effects, Dynamics of Professional Recovery Coaching, Motivation to Change, Right Thinking in Recovery, Family Issues in Recovery, Codependent Behaviors in Addiction, and Ethical and Legal Issues in Professional Recovery Coaching. Go to my website, SoberiThrive.org and book your free, confidential, 30-minute call. We can help create the sober warrior within you.